Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. Happy Memorial Day weekend. On today's program, I'll take you with me to the North Shore for my visit to the Chicago Botanic Garden, which just unveiled a summer-long project celebrating its milestone 50th anniversary. Theater critic Carrie Reed will join me to discuss the world premiere musical Somewhere Over the Border. Later in the show, local filmmaker Michael Glover-Smith and actor Elizabeth Stamm will join me in studio to talk about their new Rogers Park set independent movie, Relative. And we'll hear from the editor of a gorgeous travel food book that will get you excited about traveling again. That's all coming up. Thanks for making time for Arts and Culture this morning. This weekend signals the unofficial start of summer. After staying indoors for much of the past half year, Chicago area residents are ready to spend some time outside. And as the temperatures get warmer, the number of people visiting the Chicago Botanic Garden goes up. We do see that as the weather gets nicer and school lets out and summertime is here, our attendance really goes up in these months, May through September. We do see a big increase in visitorship. This is Jody Zambolo, the Chicago Botanic Gardens Associate Vice President of Visitor Events and Programs. The Glencoe-based Nature Sanctuary is celebrating its milestone 50th anniversary with a summer-long program called Flourish, the Garden at 50. Ten artists were commissioned to create installations that connect the garden's mission and history. Visitors will encounter the pieces throughout the Chicago Botanic Gardens' lush 385-acre campus. I recently visited the Chicago Botanic Garden to check out the new art installations and learn more about its history. Zambolo says the origins of the garden are connected to the Chicago Horticultural Society, which began working on a public garden in 1962. Ten years later, the garden began welcoming visitors. When we opened our doors to the public in 1972, we had one small greenhouse and one garden. And by the end of that year, I think we had just over 10,000 visitors. Now, forward 50 years, and we have 28 display gardens, four natural areas, a plant science center, a learning campus, and 16 community gardens and farms in Chicago and in Lake County. And last year, we had 1.1 million visitors. So you can see the tremendous growth that has happened in, f- in just 50 years. Do we know anything about why this, the Glencoe area, was selected as far as where this ended up? Uh, so we actually sit on um, land that is owned by the Forest Preserve District of Cook County. And we manage that land as the Chicago Horticultural Society. So the land already existed. And then they got together with the Chicago Horticultural Society to decide what to do with it. And that's when the Chicago Botanic Garden was dreamed up. Looking back, a lot has changed over the past five decades. The past two years have likely been the strangest of the last 50. Zambolo says the pandemic presented some challenges, though there was a silver lining. 
right when we closed down for COVID, we did close down for a couple of months. But then realizing once, you know, everything was coming out about COVID and what was happening, um, being an outdoor museum, uh, we knew that we could open our doors back up for people to walk around in the garden safely. And we followed all the guidelines. And so that, that really saved us. That was great because, and people were looking for that. People were looking to get out of their homes or wherever and to walk around and enjoy nature. And it's, and it's such a respite, you know, so many people found it very healing um, to come here over the past couple of years. And we've been lucky that way. And we did have outdoor events too, that we were able to hold again, because they were outdoors. So that really helped sustain the garden through those hard times. Yeah, I can only imagine having this giant outdoor space. I mean, are you able to say, did you see an increase in visitors? So we didn't see an increase in visitors only because when following the guidelines at certain times, we really had to cut back on how many people we allowed into the garden. Because, you know, there were days on a Sunday, if it in the summertime, you could get up to 10,000 people. Well, at that time, back in 2020 and 2021, that wasn't really what you wanted to do, right? You wanted people to feel comfortable. So we um, instituted a plan where you had to pre-register online to come to the garden so you pick a time slot and that way we were sure that that people were were coming at different times and it was a comfortable um, area for them so obviously 50 years is a milestone anniversary i'm sure a lot of thought went into how do you commemorate this Mm -hmm. did the uh, plans change at all because of the pandemic or would, would it have been the same regardless no our plans didn't change because we knew we wanted to do something outdoors and the majority of it to be outdoors. And we knew um, that we wanted something with art and nature because the two really do connect, you know, in different ways for people. And so we have in the past had one artist on site with many of his installations, his or her installations, but we wanted to represent a lot of different artists. So this is the first time we've done something like that. So we have 10 artists, uh, visual artists, and then we have a poet that we worked with. So that's how we came up with this idea and just to spread them throughout the grounds and have people wander around and come up upon them, you know, when they do at a leisurely pace and just really enjoy it. Um, Some of them are interactive, so they'll be great for families to come and, you know, the kids like to run around uh, by a certain piece and others are there to contemplate. You know, the visitor really thinks about it. But we did ask all the artists to be inspired by what is here and to be inspired by nature um, and what was happening in the world. We just wanted uh, the artists to be inspired by our grounds, by nature, um, by the 50th too. We asked, you know, for pieces to be also maybe include um, celebrating and um, joyous and uh, so there is a an artist who really took that to heart and they uh, built a oversized picnic table and with big birthday cake in the middle so you know it just the the range is really big Um, you know you have things that are actually constructed out of natural materials but then you have ones that are not but they really represent maybe a garden item or um, inspired by the garden or something like that so it, that's what we loved about it is that everything is so different and you it's not uh, you're not going to come upon the same thing twice and feel the same about it so i'll just pick out a, a couple not that I, we're showing any favoritism but just uh, <laughs> one 
One that caught my eye is it's sitting in this body of water. It's by Chicago artist Edra Soto. That is called uh, House Island. And for people who are familiar with her work, I think they would look at that and say, oh, that looks like an Edra piece to me. And But she did make it specifically for the garden. And she took one of our challenges, which was for one of the artists to build something that would be in our lake system, which we have never done before. So she did that and did it tremendously. And it's a beautiful piece, and again, it's called House Island, and we also, um, she has a tree in the middle of it that is referred to as the heart of the house. And if you were to look online or come here and read her statement, you would understand where that all came from for her. And then the other one, uh, right when you, if you come in through the, the main visitor center entrance, if you look up, there's a bunch of, of hanging uh, Dried flora, is that, mm-hmm. is that how you do, would describe it? Yes, exactly. They're dried, they're preserved in dried flowers. So last year, at about this time, we had some of our volunteers, you know, really itching to get out into the garden and do something. So we knew that this artist was going to be doing a piece for, for us. Her name is Rebecca Louise Law, and she's from Cambridge, uh, UK. And so the volunteers went around in, in our garden, here at the Chicago Botanic Garden, and cut blooms. And then they took them down to the south end to a pole barn and dried them. So when she came here in April, they then came back and helped her wrap these dried flower heads onto copper wire. And then she got on a lift and hung all of them from the ceiling in the visitor center. It is just tremendous. Mm-hmm. Visitors will also be able to learn about the history of the Chicago Botanic Garden. There's a detailed timeline on display adjacent to a new mural that's one of the indoor installations. That exhibition is specifically for our 50th, and so we wanted to do kind of interpret what the history of the garden is, but not in a dry timeline way. So we added fun to it. So you can learn about the past, present, and future of the garden through staff stories. There's videos, there's um, stories uh, hung up on the wall with with photos, and it just talks about you know the garden from 1972 up until today. And then we also asked muralist Sam Kirk from Chicago to help us with that. So she did this amazing mural that you'll see. Bright, colorful, engaging, diverse. And her statement talks about how she has seen children in the, maybe at the Chicago Botanic Garden or even at our urban agriculture programs and how she was just so drawn to that. And she's interpreted that all in her mural. Have you heard from longtime members or longtime visitors uh, that maybe have, have visited since mm-hmm. the garden opened? We have. I know we're going to be doing special events for members, but also a special event for our really longtime members, maybe those who have been with us at least 50 years, which they we do have. They yeah. are still here. We have one of the largest uh, membership bases in all of the, the gardens uh, nationwide. So we are very well supported by those members who love this place. We're also thinking of doing, I think, the member stories through our website, you know, if people have special things. And then we have um, part of that exhibition in the greenhouse galleries of the past, present, and future. There is a place where any visitor can come and sit down and talk about their memories of the garden. Can you share anything about the, you said past, present, and future? Can you tell us anything about what the the future might look like? So we, for the future, we kind of left that open-ended. And so Sam's mural, if you look closely and you take some time to study it, you might see um, one of the, the 
people on there is holding a robot in his hand or there's also a woman who I think her hand has grown into a plant so we just we asked um, we interviewed staff of like what what do you think the future holds for the garden but the hope is that we are leaving a place for the people that come you know 50 years down the road that we are still here and doing as good a job as we are right now. That's Jody Zambolo. She's the Associate Vice President of Visitor Events and Programs at the Chicago Botanic Garden. Flourish, the Garden at 50, will continue through September 25th. You can find more information at chicagobotanic.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now by theater critic Carrie Reed. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. How are you? I'm well. Your fellow uh, dueler, I think, is a little under the, the weather today. So That's, Yeah, he's, he's in an undisclosed location. So. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be back next week. Jonathan Abarbanel will be back next week. But the show... Must go on, of course, and we're going to talk about a new production. Elements of The Wizard of Oz can be seen in Teatro Vista's world premiere, Somewhere Over the Border. Instead of Dorothy trying to get back home, a young woman named Rena is trying to make the dangerous trek from El Salvador to the United States. The musical is actually based on the real-life story of playwright Brian Quijada's mother coming to America in the late 70s. We'll get into to Summer Over the Border, but just for some background, this isn't the first time Quijada and Teatro Vista have teamed up, right? No, this is not. Um, about six years ago, I saw Brian Quijada's solo, kind of solo-slash-musical show called Where Did We Sit on the Bus? Um, the title for that show um, comes from him coming home, and he is a, ch- a child of Salvadoran immigrants, as you mentioned. He grew up in the Chicago suburbs, so I think he's mostly in New York now. But... He comes home from school in Chicago. Uh, they had told him in third grade the story of Rosa Parks, and he had asked his teacher, well, you know, where did people like me sit on the bus? And his teacher's response was, well, they weren't around, which was, of course, less than satisfactory. So that set him on a whole uh, journey, you know, to find out more about his parents' lives, about the history of um, Latino people in America. So in that sense, a little not totally dissimilar from earlier works by John Leguizamo, um, who did Latin history for morons and has been also been seen for many, many years in Chicago. He started out at the Goodman. But Quijada's piece used a lot of, uh, that solo piece used a lot of hip-hop, a lot of loops, and sort of spoken word poetry. And it was a story both of his finding out his heritage and also trying to get his family to understand, you know, because they're working-class immigrant people, why a career in the arts makes sense for him. And that's a fairly common story, I think, particularly for, you know, second generation immigrants. If your parents have been, you know, working as, you know, housekeepers and truckers and doing this kind of work to say, wait, you want to go do what now? And how do you make money at it? Right. Um, somewhere over the border is such, in a way, an extension of that. But I think it's also just a really beautiful reimagining of a lot of different tropes. Gary, you mentioned The Wizard of Oz. And certainly Raina, the young woman who uh, makes this journey, comes across three friends who have great parallels with the friends of Dorothy, the friends of Dorothy <laughs> in, um, in that movie. But I think it's also just a celebration of and an examination of what it takes to make that decision, how hard it can be to leave family behind, the actual physical struggles and dangers and fears 
in the moment of making that border crossing and then coming here and realizing, well, the streets are not, it's not a yellow brick road. They're not paved with gold. It's going to take an awful lot of work, you know, to even just find a footing here. So it's, it's, it's also, I think, a great step forward for Teatro Vista. This is their first live performance since the shutdown, the first live show they've done under the new co-artistic leadership of Lorena Diaz and Wendy Mateo. And I think it's one of the biggest budget shows that they've done. There are four musicians, a full cast, several of whom play multiple roles, and it's done at Windy City Playhouse. So they've used, they, which is, if any of our listeners have been there, they know it's a pretty big space and very flexible. So they've, they've definitely utilized that. But I just absolutely adore this show. So that's maybe one thing I really want people to take away. It's an immigrant story. It's a musical. It's a fantasy. It's also, you know, rooted in some, um, some pretty grim realities. Um, although Chiara, I should say, he doesn't really go into a lot of the details about what was politically happening in El Salvador in the 1970s uh, with the, the incipient civil war and all of that. I mean, it's mentioned, but it's not really a political show as such, I would say. And I don't want to get into to spoilers, but I was reading uh, about Chiara's personal story or his mother's personal story. Mm-hmm. And so she makes, she embarks on, on this journey uh, from El Salvador, which involves going to right. Guatemala, to Mexico, to the United States, um, and she's not able to return for her son for 10 years? Is that in the... Right. She has an infant son, Fernando, who would be uh, Quijada's half-older half-brother. Um, he also has a younger brother, Marvin Quijada, who is also an actor and has worked with, with Teatro Vista in the past. Um, so she that's one of the wrenching decisions she has to make. She knows that it would be too dangerous a journey to make with her infant child, so she leaves her child with her her mother, Julia, and, um, you know, and, and she's going to make a better life for her son, but that does mean that for 10 years, while she's working to get her green card, she is not able to come back and see him. Um, so that that is definitely one of the, um, you know, one of the more poignant aspects of this, that you're doing it for your family, but it requires you to be away from your family. And again, I think that's a story that a lot of has been true for a lot of Americans who have immigrated here, um, you know, since, since, you know, since we were a country or even before, you know, people came to make a better life. And, um, you know, it it required giving things up at home or dealing with the racism and, um, you know, difficulties in their new land. So. And I have a clip here from one of the the songs. This is a song called Tornado. The tornado roars, and when it rains, it pours. It's the storm that makes you walk out the door. Happened so quick, happened so fast. Ooh, life can take off in a blast. Leaving the old, quick memory of the past. No moment to think about That's playwright and composer Brian Quijada performing a, a song called Tornado that's in the world premiere production of Somewhere Over the Border. So, Carrie, how would you describe the music in the show? Uh, it's a really good mix. You know, like, as I mentioned, he kind of has you know sort of hip-hop inflections that he's used in his earlier shows. This one has a lot of cumbia, um, Mexican boleros. Uh, he himself, uh, Quijada, appears as a narrator and in some other characters in the show. He plays guitar. There's a uh, percussion, bass, and uh, 
and keyboards. Uh, and, and there's little moments with the band, too, because they're sort of set in the center. So they're very much present um, as a force. They're not just off to the side. The music is very much front and center. So I, I think it's just a really nice blend. Uh, as the story itself is a blend of different you know, different elements. The music, you know, really draws upon more traditional music from the Latino cultures, as well as you know, what is obviously Quijada's own strong interest in kind of spoken word hip hop, uh, you know, sort of flow. And then, as far as the the connection to to Wizard of Oz, there are those uh, those obvious references with uh, right. the three friends. But you also say it doesn't fall into like over the top. No, I mean, you, you get to see them, but it's not, you know, for instance, she meets, the, there's a farmer, a banana farmer she meets in Mexico, because she has to take a journey from, uh, on the bus through Guatemala, four different buses, so she has plenty of chances to meet other people. There's a banana farmer who wants to go to university to learn more advanced agricultural techniques. Well, there's your scarecrow. They stay one night with an innkeeper who's brokenhearted because his family has immigrated ahead of him to Pittsburgh and he hasn't really heard from them and he's kind of been drinking himself into a you know into a stupor in his in his sense of loss so there's your you know there's your man who needs a heart needs to reconnect with his heart like this like the tin man and the last one is uh, a nun who they stay with in a convent Leona who went into the convent uh kind of to escape a, a planned marriage but really wants to be a rock star if only she had the courage of course <laughs> the name leona you know you can see where this is going and then kiata himself appears as the coyote the the person who's going to help them across the border if they can come up with 1500 mexican pesos and uh he's he, so he's sort of the wizard and much like the wizard you find out that his powers are not as uh uh perhaps as great or as um you know, not, not, it's, it's not a bed of roses, except in some ways it is, but I won't tell you what that means okay. if you see the show. You know, I remember when I was uh, a kid, my parents watched the independent movie El Norte, which is about uh, brother and sister immigrating from Guatemala. It was like this eye-opening thing. And, and then over the years, of course, it's gotten uh, more attention. I saw a PBS story... Uh, I believe last year, maybe two years ago, where a reporter embedded herself with a group of immigrants trying to make that mm-hmm. trek from Central America to the United States, and it was probably the the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. Just right. uh, just how rugged that journey is, and how dangerous. Um, Absolutely, it is. You know, and you know, it's interesting because um, when I was seeing this, I was also reminded of a show that was went up, I think, in 2017 at 16th Street Theater. Um, into the Beautiful North, which is based on a uh, novel by uh, Chicagoan Luis Alberto Urea, and it was uh, adapted for 16th Street in Berlin by Karen Zacharias. That is a story of a young girl in Mexico whose town is being taken over by cartels. They have a little cinema in town. She's seen The Magnificent Seven many times, so she decides to go north and find, you know, her own group of <laughs> right. people to come back and, you know. So but there, the parallels there, I think, are in how these movies that are created, you know, by Hollywood and elsewhere, these, these mass cultural artifacts, take on such importance for people no matter where they're living, right? They, You know, that they have some kind of, you know, some kind of connection. But, yeah, I, I, he's not trying to make a one-to-one you know, this is not, you know, even though I think you can find elements of the whiz, perhaps, if you, you know, in terms of a contemporary updating, it's very much rooted, you know, in the story of his mother. I think he's taken some liberties. I think in a program note, they said that Reina was actually a little bit older, the real Reina, than the than the 17-year-old who's making the journey here. So whether everything happened exactly as we're being told, I don't know. 
but I think what makes this show so strong is there's such an emotional truth to it, you know, and um, and so much respect for the women, not just, I should say, for Fotorena, who is played by uh, Gabriela Moscoso, but also for Julia, who's played by Claudia Quesada. And Julia is the one who has to stay home. Julia is the one who's holding it together, even as things are getting worse and worse in El Salvador, the Civil War. You know, she's the one taking care of little Fernando all these years. You know, not really sure. You know, she's getting letters and that sort of thing. But And also, this is her only daughter. So there's that loss, too, that for 10 years she has not had her only daughter at home with her. So um, I think it's really a celebration of particularly the women. And early on, um, you know, Bihada talks about the fact that you know, his, the, the father of his, uh, uh, you know, the, of his, um, neither the father of his mother nor of his half-brother were really a part of this. I think he has a line about father figures don't really figure into this story. So it's, you know, it's kind of about the strength of the matriarchy. You know, the men's roles are also, you know, incredibly delightful as well. So. Sure, sure. Sounds like a, a strong recommendation from you. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think that it, if you have... You know, and I think it's appropriate for younger audiences, not super young, but I don't, there's nothing, you know, too explicit or um, adult, let's say. So I think if you have, you know, preteens or, you know, people who are, you know, in your family who are interested in knowing more, you know, about some of the issues around immigration or just are fans of The Wizard of Oz and would love to see a really imaginative, (laughs) you know, uh, use of that story to tell you know, a very vivid story about um, one family's path to the United States, then I think Somewhere Over the Border is an absolutely uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, choice. And again, I, I just think it's a great uh, welcome back for Teatro Vista, which has been around for over 30 years doing stories from, you know, from the Latino diaspora. Teatro Vista's world premiere musical Somewhere Over the Border is running through June 12th at Windy City Playhouse. Carrie, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. And a quick uh, preview for next week. You'll be back. Hopefully Jonathan will, and we'll be doing a, a summer theater preview. See you next week. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. After an extended pause because of the pandemic, Chicago-based filmmaker Michael Glover-Smith is excited to present his latest project to his hometown. His new film, Relative, will be shown at both the Music Box Theater and the Siskel Film Center in early June. The movie offers a glimpse into the lives of a modern American family that's evolving. The various members of the Rogers Park-based Frank family are navigating new realities as they move forward with their own lives while also attempting to stay connected. Relatives' ensemble cast features a vibrant mix of film, TV, and stage actors, including Steppenwolf Theater ensemble member Francis Guinan and TV's Wendy Roby, as the husband and wife cornerstones of the Frank family. What did you think of what Norma said? What she said about what? About the disintegration of our family. Disintegration? That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? You know, I knew exactly what she was talking about, even though I pretended not to. Your first impulse has always been to smooth things over. That's a good quality. Yeah, but maybe if I didn't always ignore the shortcomings of our children, 
things would have worked out better for them. They, they might have turned out better. My God, David. Are they really that bad? Um, that was a clip from Relative you heard from Guinan and Roby. The film was shot in Chicago, mostly inside a 19th century Victorian home in the Rogers Park neighborhood. Smith, who wrote and directed the film, and actor Elizabeth Stamm, who plays a character named Hecla in the movie, recently stopped by WDCB Studios to talk with me about Relative. You write in your filmmaker statement that your previous films dealt with romantic relationships in relative, you're more interested in exploring parent-child and sibling relationships. Did something spark that or something inspiring shift? Yeah, I think I it kind of stemmed from a desire to create a film about the human experience that would be intensely relatable. You know, I wanted to make a film that anyone could relate to. So um, I thought that taking the subject of family on would be a good way to do that. And specifically, I hit upon the idea of a scenario where the youngest member of a family is graduating from college. And so I thought that would be, you know, kind of a particularly rich um, scenario that would allow us to explore um, a whole, you know, host of issues um, that would be relatable, such as you know, marriage and divorce and retirement and having an empty nest and so on and so forth. So I think I've had you on to, to talk about each of your, your films over the years, starting with Cool Apocalypse all the way back in 2015, your first full-length feature. So I've watched uh, you know, your evolution over the years, uh, and this is new material. So were there changes in, in your life, in your personal life, that, that got you thinking about these new ideas? I come from a fairly large family. So, uh, of course, I was thinking about my own family. I have an older brother and a younger brother, and we're all fairly close in age. And we're also scattered throughout the United States. So I typically only see the members of my immediate family once a year. Um, and so I was just thinking about those emotions that I feel when I reunite with them and also when I have to say goodbye to them. And that was a big inspiration for um, the kind of, you know, three-day family reunion that you see in Relative. I don't want to focus on it too much, but I feel like the pandemic looms over everything. So I'm just curious how it affected production of this. I mean, it was hard for everybody. So, uh, but it was really, it, it, it almost, this film almost didn't happen because we were ready to go. Not only did we have a script in early 2020, we also had fully cast the film. I had hired all the crew. We'd found all of the locations. And um, then we had to postpone for 13 months. We were originally supposed to shoot in May of 2020, and we ended up shooting last June. And during that time, you know, some people left the project because they got other jobs and uh, weren't able to do it. Um, we lost some locations. And also, I was continually revising the script during that time period because I had a lot of time on my hands, and the script actually got shorter over that time span. And in my opinion, it got a lot tighter as well. So it, in, a, in a way, it turned out to be uh, a blessing in disguise. So when you say it almost didn't happen, were there periods where you were 
were you thinking like, things aren't changing? There was a period just a few months before we were scheduled to start where both my lead producer, Aaron Wertheimer, and I thought it was not, we were going to have to, you know, postpone it for another year. And I kind of realized if we don't do it now, we're going to have to recast the whole thing because the actors are going to be too old. <laughs> you know, Elizabeth Stam cannot yeah. play a 21-year-old forever. Yeah, started the pandemic young, came out of <laughs> not as young. So one thing I know when I sit down to watch a Michael Glover Smith film is I'm going to get these uh, fully drawn-out characters uh, that feel like people I've met. And so I've asked you this before, but I'm just curious because here we have uh, the Frank family, which includes uh, two parents, four adult children, their respective partners, uh, and some kids. It's this nice sized ensemble. So what is your process when you're creating characters? How do you start? Well, this was somewhat of a new experience for me because, you know, uh, as you said uh, a few minutes ago, it, it I, I most of my films previously were about romantic relationships among people who are fairly young. But here I started with the parents. I started with, you know, the the oldest characters. And then it's sort of uh, in, in constructing the family, it became a question of who are their children? You know, which of their kids um, adopted their parents' traits and, you know, in w- which of their kids rebelled against the parents? and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time creating the characters before I ever really started writing the the script because, as you know, for me, character is everything. I don't really care about plot. I just want to observe people that I find interesting. You know, you spend all this energy creating these real characters, and then uh, casting becomes that much more important. Do you have a specific idea for, I know you have a casting director, but how big of a role do you play in in the final decisions? Well, I mean, I have, you know, veto power (laughs) 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 over my wonderful casting director, Claire Cooney, who also plays the role of Yvonne, the, the younger daughter in the family. No, Claire is amazing. She was a part of the Chicago theater scene for years, and um, she was a casting director here. She worked at Theater Wit. And Mm -hmm. um, so she is very good at sort of funneling actors to me. We cast this uh, before the, we started casting it before the pandemic began, and we finished it during the pandemic. And the initial round of auditions, it was a traditional audition process. I saw a lot of uh, videotapes. And then um, we had callbacks and then we did the callbacks in person. And at that point, it sort of became about, you know, chemistry. As soon as we cast uh, the character of Rod, played by the great Keith Gallagher, um, we needed to find a, a, a Sarah, his cam girl ex, ex uh, who could sort of match his energy, who would have the right chemistry with him. And the same thing for Liz's character, Hecla. You know, we actually cast her before we cast Benji. Huh. And so they had to connect with me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, at that point, it's all about, you know, who has the right romantic chemistry mm-hmm. with Liz Stam. So let's turn to uh, Elizabeth's initial impressions when you first saw the script. Well, Michael actually sent me the script early 2019, I believe. I love any family story. I feel like you can never... In the world, there can't be enough stories about family because they're all so different um, in so many ways. So reading it, 
I fell in love with immediately because I always, like, right when I meet someone, I want to know about their childhood. I want to know about where they came from. Um, so that definitely drew me in super quickly. But to be honest, the initial script changed. Like, you were sending me, like, draft 12, draft 15, draft 30. <laughs> and I was like, I can't read this fast, Michael. <laughs> but by the end, it was, I mean, I fell in love in the very beginning. But by the end, I was, I knew I had to do it. So you play this character, Hecla, who's a Chicago-based theater actor, mm-hmm. trying to be, is that close to who you are? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Honestly, Hecla is everything I want to be and more. <laughs> I aspire to be more like her every day. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me just jump in here, Gary. I, I actually wrote that part for her. Okay. So she, uh, Liz came to the project a little bit differently. Um, she did not come through Claire Cooney. No, yes. Liz and I met at a film festival in Florence, Alabama. Oh, wow. <laughs> you ever been? Nope. <laughs> can't say that I have. It's a fun college town. It is. It's, it was very cute. They have a great festival there, and I was there with my previous film, Rendezvous in Chicago, and Liz was there with her first film. Mm-hmm. Bleed American. Yeah. And I saw her on screen. I thought she was fantastic. And uh, I introduced myself to her after it was over. Uh, not, you know, and that was a film that was made in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And then I was kind of blown away when she said she lived in Chicago. And I said, me too. We should work together. Uh, so, wow. you know, then yeah, I, it worked I, out really flawless. We both came back to Chicago. I finished the script and I shot it over to her. And I said, this is the part I would like for you to play. Mm-hmm. And uh, go back to kind of what I was asking. So then when the Hecla character, you already had met Elizabeth, so was that informing how you wrote her? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the the Aww. film the film would have been totally different had I not met her, huh. um, because the character of Hecla is very eccentric um, and very you know com- a natural comedian, um, and uh, that was based on my impression of Liz. Not that Liz <laughs> is playing herself. I mean, you know, Aww. she's playing a character outside of herself. But <laughs> but I tried to create a character. It would allow her to use her, you know, comic chops um, because I just thought she was hilarious. And um, I also want to point out that even though I wrote it for her, then I also made her audition. <laughs> yes. Yes. I had to read with um, Cameron, who plays Benji. Yeah. And what what I said to you is I was like, Liz, I'm 99 percent sure you can do this. Yeah, I just ne- I just need to see it. <laughs> Wasn't be it Claire? Claire sure. was like, we've got to bring her in. I got to see who this girl is. Claire basically forced me to make this audition. <laughs> I'll never let Claire live it down. <laughs> She's not here to defend herself. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Chicago-based filmmaker Michael Glover-Smith and actor Elizabeth Stamm about the new locally shot independent film they worked on, Relative. Let's listen to a clip in this scene. Uh, Elizabeth is put on the spot and has to deliver a a monologue at a family get-together. This was such a great party, really. Just a minute, Hecla. I have a request before you go. Yeah, what's that? Since you're an actress, do you have a monologue you could perform for us? Stevie, now's probably not the best time. Comedy or drama? Comedy. Leave them laughing when you go, eh? (laughs) Yes! Okay, okay. This is The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde. Oh, it is strange that he never mentioned to me that he had a ward. How secretive of him. 
he grows more interesting hourly. <laughs> I am not sure, however, that this news inspires me with feelings of unmixed delight. I am very fond of you, Cecily. Oh. <laughs> I have liked you ever since I've met you. <laughs> but I am bound to state that now that I know you are Mr. Worthing's ward, I cannot help expressing a wish that you were, well, just a little bit older for your age. <laughs> and not quite so very alluring in appearance. In fact, if I may speak candidly, Cecily, well, to speak with perfect candor, I wish that you were fully 42 and more than usually plain for your age. <laughs> Ernest has a strong, upright nature. He is the very soul of truth and honor. That's uh, Elizabeth Stam in uh, the new movie Relative reciting a monologue from the importance of being earnest. It's got this meta vibe because you're performing in that scene in front of the actors while at the same time acting for the film. It was well, wild. I'm guessing that type of scene presents a different type of challenge. Yeah, there's the camera audience, but then also mm -hmm. the members of the family were watching me as well. So it was also like a stage performance because there was that audience in there as well. And I was just thankful that Wendy Roby was in the other room because doing that in front of her would have made me even more nervous. <laughs> um, but it was... It was surreal. I mean, I say that every time I did it, I blacked out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. But it like, was really fun. We only did it like three times. Michael knows when he's got <laughs> what he wants in a take. Because first I'm thinking like, I mean, this is it's not really spoilerish, but you know, somebody puts somebody on a spot at a party like that. But I guess the uh, Hecla character kind of enjoys the spotlight. Oh, she loved it. She loves. It's all. She, she was waiting for someone to ask. Well, <laughs> I, and, and I think dramatically it, it works within the context of the film because right before that there are some sort of you know big revelations and secrets yeah. uh, mm -hmm. revealed mm -hmm. by members of the family. So I think. Hecla is really doing everybody a favor by putting on this performance because that kind of starts the party back up again. Sure. Yeah. Oh, um, what an angel she is. Good for her. <laughs> I mean, second date, going to meet the, the family. I know. That's tough. That's and she tough. was all in it. Uh huh. So for something like this, and we'll start with Elizabeth and Michael, you can uh, jump in, but it's this family that's close-knit uh, some separation and then there are these partners so there's this like level of intimacy that has to be apparent right away you as like cast members did you spend time with each other to try to develop that before officially starting to shoot oh yeah absolutely i remember cameron and i actually went over to michael's house just to kind of rehearse and practice but i think you also like poured some whiskey and we just <laughs> sat out in his backyard and went over it it was super fun um, and then on set, there was like a porch in the back of the house also. So we also kind of went and sat out there when we weren't working or before we got our makeup done. And we all hung out out there because it was so beautiful in Chicago that summer. So yeah, we definitely did get to know each other beforehand. And Michael, is that something that you try to do as the, the director is try to build that? Well, um, for a film like this, you know, we don't rehearse all of it in advance, but there are certain key scenes where I think it's important to rehearse. So, you know, Liz playing Hecla, Cameron playing Benji, we really needed to feel 
like the romantic chemistry was right. So that they were literally the only people who I rehearsed with in person yeah. before oh, really? shooting. Yeah, I did do Zoom rehearsals. Okay, it was all with the best uh, yeah Wendy Roby and Claire. Uh, they have some highly emotional scenes, mother daughter scenes towards the end. We rehearsed those via Zoom, and then uh, the other Zoom rehearsal I did was with. Keith Gallagher and Heather Chrysler. They have the explosive confrontation on the porch. Um, and we did that via Zoom. So the more emotional scenes, I think it's important to rehearse in advance. The cast is great. Uh, and I'm a big, you know, on the show, I do a lot of local theater. So I'm a supporter of a lot of uh, local actors. So I don't want to, like, leave anybody out because I know when people listen to things, like if you highlight somebody and then you don't somebody else, then it feels like. So it's, it's not that, but... Elizabeth, you were fantastic. You uh, mentioned Wendy Roby. You know, I've seen her in a bunch of things uh, before this, but I just have to say, like, Francis Guinan. Yeah. <laughs> he makes it look easy. Oh, my he God. He really does. He is, the most, he is the most naturalistic actor I've ever worked with, and, uh, and, and that's saying a lot. You know, everybody in this cast is amazing. Um, they all have different strengths. And I, I think, you know, I was able to show them, allow them to show their strengths through mm-hmm. these roles. But Francis in particular, he can take even mediocre dialogue and just make it sound so spontaneous. Everything he says, it just sounds like it's the first time that thought has ever been transmitted. Mm-hmm. And he's like a magician. You know, it's absolutely incredible. And to have like a Steppenwolf ensemble member who's been with Steppenwolf since the 1970s. My God. What I mean, just what a dream. So I also every time I watch one of your films, I enjoy watching the uh, locations uh, here. That house that we see the exterior. Did you shoot in that house? Oh, yeah, that was uh, the main location. Um, We shot there for seven full days. So. Almost all of the interior scenes in the house were actually shot in that house. Hmm. So we were very fortunate because um, that house is incredible. It was actually built in the 19th century. So um, it's, a, it's a historic building. Right. And the fact that the, the couple who owns it were so generous to open yeah. their home to us and let us. And they would hang out. They hung around the house and we got to know them. They were so cool. Yeah. <laughs> they were great. So how did you, we don't have to go too far, but how, like... You just drive by and no, you know, a friend of mine was walking her dog down the street and saw this guy walking down the front steps of this house. And he stopped to talk to her about her dog. And she <laughs> just said to him right then and there, you know, a friend of mine is writing a script that takes place in a beautiful old Victorian home like yours. Uh, would you ever consider letting someone film a movie here? And he was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so she like snapped a photo of the house with her phone, sent it to me and said, is this what you're looking for? And, uh, you know, it was destiny. And it was right by your house, right? It's like two blocks from where I live. Yeah, you got to uh, walk to work every day. I know there was, uh, uh, what do they call that, first, first Tuesdays with the Midwest Film Festival? Yes. That what was is it? First Tuesdays? First Tuesdays. First Tuesdays. Because I had Erica Duffy on the show a couple months ago. She's amazing. And I know she's a producer on this too, right? Yeah, she's an executive producer because she, in addition to being the director of the Midwest Film Festival, she owns Camera mm-hmm. Ambassador. And, uh, and they were the shop that provided us with our equipment. So that was the technical, the, that early 
premiere here, but now we've got uh, we've got kind of like a co premiere at the Siskel Center in the Music Box Theater. That's that's kind of unusual. Is that just because you're Michael Glover Smith? You know, <laughs> I can't believe they both agreed to show the film because normally I, I think they demand exclusivity. Uh, yeah, exactly. So it's very weird that they're they're both showing it. But uh, I'm so happy that they are because those are absolutely the two best movie theaters in the city of Chicago. I've been living here since 1993 and I, I frequent both of them all of the time. And, uh, you know, one's in the loop, one's uh, in Wrigleyville. So I think they do kind of draw slightly different audiences. Mm-hmm. But we're going to do a Q&A with the full cast at both theaters. So everyone will have the chance to see this movie, no matter where you live in the city of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the, uh, the Music Box uh, premiere on Wednesday, June 8th at 7 p.m., People can still go see it there, and then um, you're going to do a full Q&A there. There will be a full Q&A at the, at the Music Box, and uh, there's an after party, um, the tickets of which have already sold out. But there are regular tickets uh, on sale for that screening, for the screening and the Q&A. Right. And then uh, at the Siskel Center, you'll be there uh, Friday, June 10th, Wednesday, June 15th, and Thursday, June 16th, and there's different types of... Uh, panel discussions each of those screenings and i think elizabeth you'll be there on the june 10th yes i will i know you're also doing film festivals maybe it's still going to different film festivals around the country but uh, for these chicago screenings it has to mean does it mean a little something extra your hometown oh absolutely this is the audience that matters the most Um, Because this film is a love letter to the city of Chicago and to the neighborhood of Rogers Park in particular. So um, people who who know Chicago, who know these neighborhoods and know the the people who live here uh, are definitely going to recognize themselves on screen um, in in a way that's different from how people might relate to it elsewhere in the country. Mm -hmm. Well, I've already told you off mic that I I really enjoyed it and... uh, it's always a pleasure, Michael, to have you here, and it's great to meet you, Elizabeth. Thanks for coming out. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Gary. That was filmmaker Michael Glover-Smith and actor Elizabeth Stam. Relative will be playing at both the Music Box Theater and Cisco Film Center in early June. You can find information about showtimes at musicboxtheater.com and siskelfilmcenter.org. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. After a long period of uncertainty, a growing number of people are planning real summer vacations this year. The new book, Gastro Obscura, serves as a guide of sorts to all sorts of different local delicacies you can find in all corners of the globe. Gastro Obscura explores some of the most intriguing and tantalizing food stories from around the world. The publication comes from the travel website Atlas Obscura, which was established in 2009 and has grown tremendously over the past decade. You've likely come across one of the company's Atlas Obscura travel books at your local bookshop or scrolling through Amazon. A few years ago, the organization launched a food site called Gastro Obscura, an online publication dedicated to exploring unique stories about food. And now there's a book version. 
the online publication of Gastro Obscura was kind of intertwined with the book from the start. We knew we were going to make a book uh, as we started the Gastro Obscura project. Both of those things flowed out of Atlas Obscura. This is Dylan Thuris. He's the co-founder and creative director of Atlas Obscura and the co-author of the new book Gastro Obscura. I caught up with Thuris over the phone to talk about some of the compelling food stories he uncovered while working on the book. With something like this that's global in scale, did you and your co-author, Cicely Wong, go into this with a a mission statement or a a set of guiding principles uh, as far as what you were looking for? Yeah, definitely. You know, this book started in a lot of ways in the same way that Atlas Obscura started and with a lot of the same principles, which was around this idea of wonder being found kind of wherever you're open to look for it. And that that doesn't have to be, you know, far away. It could be really in your own backyard. And it's sort of about how you go about telling stories. In the case of Alice Obscura, it's about stories of place. And in the case of Gastro Obscura, it's stories of of food and uh, drink and restaurants. And so, you know, it was a similar idea. And we began the process in a similar way, which is reaching out to our community of uh, people who are all over the world uh, yeah, and love sharing sort of the things that make uh, where they live interesting and unique. And so we got a bunch of submissions about different interesting uh, foods, dishes, ingredients all, all around the world. And we kind of collected those and mapped them uh, and then said, okay, so where, where, where do we want to go deeper? Where do we want more? And then Cecily and I uh, sort of Basically, 50% of the book came in in sort of that tip form, and then we, we worked on those, and the other 50% we went out and kind of found uh, uh, and, and said that this really belongs in the book. And, um, and it was a really fun process. It was, you know, we got to kind of uh, taste and experience a number of these things along the way, and so it's been about four years in the making. But, uh, yeah, I'm really happy to have it out in the world. How many places did you physically visit for the book? Not not a huge number because of the nature. Uh, well, some of this happened during the pandemic, so that kind of put a squash on on things. Uh, but but also because we were based in New York um, and because of the internet, a lot of times we were able to either visit um, some place that could can make a dish or uh, or order something o- online uh, to to try it. So. I wish I could say that we had a, you know, all continent pass and that we were eating lunch on Antarctica. Uh, but often it was it was more about making recipes at home, uh, getting, you know, things delivered and, and going out to restaurants that are serving dishes from really all over the world. So I picked it up. Gorgeous cover. I'm sure everyone's telling you that. And I started flipping through it and I see the United States Midwest section starts on page 298. So I turned to that page and then. Right at the top, I see Malort with the title, One of the World's <laughs> Worst Liquors, and I think most Chicagoans would probably get a, a chuckle out of that. Have you tried Malort? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I think anyone who's gone out to a bar with friends in Chicago has probably been subjected to a surprise shot of Malort. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of like it, honestly. I have a little bit of a taste for it, but uh, it's funny because outside of Chicago, people are like, what the heck is Malort? But in Chicago, it's obviously very, very familiar. And it's a good, actually, it's a good point about the book, which is, you know, 
it's it's often that the things that seem normal to you. I I grew up in Minneapolis in Minnesota. I have Scandinavian heritage, so I grew up eating a lot of pickled herring and lessa and even lutefisk, which is you know, dried fish soaked in lye and uh, and sort of makes a fish jelly at the end. Uh, the things that you think of as sort of normal because they're part of your childhood, other people find interesting or unusual, and so it's all kind of relative to where you're from. And so for you, Malort is just part of the background of your life. Right, right, exactly. I, I interview a lot of uh, maybe visiting uh, composers or musicians, and when I ask about their memorable moments in Chicago, Malort comes up more than you would think. And, you know, and for us, and for us, it's just yeah, it's just part of our our life i don't really think about it too often so i i know there's i think over 500 entries in the book yeah. it would be impossible to, to pick a, a single favorite but what are some of the food discoveries that really stand out yeah there, there's there's you know an, an enormous amount of stuff but there's some stories that i really like one one that i like because it's a food that's very familiar to most people but i was surprised by its origin story is about pad thai uh, which is, you know, now almost as ubiquitous in uh, America as like fried rice or, or a slice of pizza. But what I didn't realize is that uh, Pad Thai was not some kind of long-held heritage dish of Thailand, but was really invented uh, in the late 1930s, early 1940s by Plak Sibon Songkram, which was, he was the prime minister and military dictator of Thailand. And he basically wanted to create um, more of a, a cohesive national state. And so he came up with these 12 edicts, including around language and how people should dress. And they were pretty oppressive. I mean, they were not particularly uh, kind to the many different uh, ethnic populations that lived in what was then called Siam, and he renamed to Thailand. Uh, but one of the other things he did was he said, we've got a new national dish. Everyone's going to eat it. It's called Pad Thai. Uh, interestingly, it's made from Chinese noodles, um, and and you know it said that that he's something he probably grew up eating, but he sort of uh, just declared that it would exist and that he wanted everyone to eat noodles. There were some practical reasons for this: rice noodles were were cheaper uh, than other options, and they added some sort of Thai ingredients, you know, tamarind, palm sugar, chilies. But uh, but I just I thought it was interesting that something I was so familiar with had this kind of uh, background. Right, right. You mentioned the pandemic at the beginning. Uh, we're in this weird period where travel is an option, but a lot of people are taking kind of a, a cautious approach and staying home, uh, but missing travel. So this book kind of offers a, a gateway to some exotic places and not so exotic places uh, just by flipping through it. Uh, do you have hopes for how people use the book? I, I think there's a couple ways to use the book, but I, I think one of the primary ones is sort of as armchair travel. It's the kind of book that, you know, if you didn't, wouldn't, it would be unusual to sit down and read it cover to cover. Uh, it's the kind of book you open up to a page and get taken to a different place, maybe to even a different time, and you learn something surprising. You know, I, I we have a story in the book that I love about, uh, in, in the hills of Turkey, there are these rhododendrons that have a neurotoxin in them the grayanotoxin. And when the bees come and collect all of this and make their honey, distills it, and it becomes something called deli ball or, or mad honey. And it's been used medicinally for thousands of years, um, but it's also actually, it, there's an incredible kind of story in, in, from history about how this honey was used as a weapon of war uh, back during the Roman Empire. 
the uh, Pompey, the Roman uh, emperor, was marching tons of soldiers into this region of Turkey to try and defeat this guy named King Mithridates. Uh, and Mithridates refused to submit to the empire. Well, what he did, well, these, these uh, soldiers were marching in. In advance of them, he laid out all of these chunks of mad honey along the road, and the soldiers basically couldn't resist. Uh, <laughs> they picked up this sweet treat, they ate it, and you know, shortly after, basically began hallucinating, maybe passing out, and in big doses, it can actually be pretty poisonous. And, uh, and then the army swept in and, and wiped him out, and it was a big sack. Uh, so I, I just, I love the way that food sort of tie us, uh, you know, place to place around the world, and, and through history, it's been a really uh, wonderful chance to kind of explore all those threads. So I, I think that's how people should read the book. They should, they should use it as a chance to kind of dip in and out of, of the world. And you can use it uh, if you're going to a place. It is great to, like, check it out and say, hey, maybe there's an interesting dish in this region that I, I want to try. I'm going to Chicago. <laughs> give me some malort. <laughs> Dylan, thanks so much for making time to talk. I love the book. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, Gary. It's good to talk to you. That's Dylan Thuris. He's the co-author of the new book, Gastro Obscura. It's available everywhere books are sold. And we were only able to scratch the surface on everything in the book. Here are some of my favorite entries that we weren't able to, to get to in the interview. In addition to the Malort piece, there's an entire section on the different foods that were introduced at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Shredded wheat, Vienna beef hot dogs, and Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum all made their debuts at the fair. Speaking of Chicago style, what country would you guess has the highest annual per capita pizza consumption of any nation on earth? I'll give you a couple seconds to guess. Okay, ready? It's Norway. Norwegians eat an estimated 50 million pizzas a year, outpacing Italy and the U.S., who would have guessed? One of my favorite entries highlights the Las Velas restaurant located on a small island in the middle of Lake Titicaca, Bolivia. And in order to get there, you first have to get to Lake Titicaca, which is no small feat. It's the highest elevated lake in the world. And then you have to get to this island, which is called Isla del Sol, Island of the Sun. And once you get on the island, you have to hike for 30 minutes through a forest to get to this restaurant, which is a thatched roof cottage with no electricity. But Chef Pablo and his wife will cook you a magnificent meal of trout and vegetables as you have an amazing view of the lake and mountains. I just really like reading about places like that. I think it's really cool, and there's lots of stuff just like that in the book. It's called Gastro Obscura, and you can find more information at atlasobscura.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. I hope you get to enjoy this Memorial Day weekend. My thoughts are with all those who, who served and died for this country. Happy Memorial Day. Thanks for listening. 